0: You are listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero podcast.
1: Hi, Derek. Hi, Bob. How you doing? Good. How are you? I uh, can't complain. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is the Non-Zero podcast. You're Derek Davison, uh, CEO of the Derek Davison Media Empire. <laughs> and that's uh, a good way to put it. Yes. Yeah. Well, you have me to thank. I guess if you if you, if you start going with that. <laughs> the um, so we're going to talk about foreign affairs. Uh, in particular, the Ukraine War, whether the Ukraine war has fractured the so-called restrainer community, you know, kind of the anti-militarist, an emerging, in some ways ideologically diverse community that I think has gained momentum in recent years. There's been some talk that the Ukraine War is a big challenge. Uh, for the community and is, is, is leading people to bail out. We're going to talk about that. But first, why don't we talk a little more about you and the Derek Davidson Media Empires. I understand it has two main branches, right? You've got the foreign exchanges newsletter thing going. Correct. And, uh, and then you got this American Prestige thing because you are in favor of American Prestige.
0: Um, absolutely. I, I love American Prestige. I love every time it gets brought up, uh, which happened with the the china with nancy pelosi's trip to taiwan recently it was wonderful to see us once again focusing so much on american prestige that that was was a big prestige we went away with that (laughs) (laughs) so yeah there's there's foreign exchanges uh which i do every day and american prestige which i also do every day but it only comes out a couple of times a week so uh, that's, uh, both those, on those are the two outlets, both on Substack. Yeah. American prestige is at, uh, American prestige pod, all one word.com and foreign exchanges is at fx.substack.com.
1: And you also appear on, uh, Chapo Trap House as the, uh, the resident, you know, when they need wisdom on foreign policy, you're the guy. Uh, yes.
0: Although the last time they had me on, we did a thing about how we, we didn't think, Russia was going to invade Ukraine and then like 3 days later they did. So that that didn't go so great, but normally it's it goes better.
1: Now this was a this was a kind of the view on the left and this is I mean this brings us to the subject which is that there is this so-called restrainer community. I don't know if you if that's a name you approve of, but the, but anyway, it has left and it has right. It has two kinds of right. It has libertarian right and it has Buchananite kind of yes. right. Yeah, uh, you know, in the sense of Patrick Buchanan, and then it has me, <laughs> and I don't. Uh, I feel a little lonely. I'm not. Like, I'm not that far left. I'm left of center, and yet I, I feel that I'm a, a full fledged restrainer. I guess there are others like me. I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't brag. But so, what is your? I mean, first of all, you want to just react to that. I mean, is this? Do you do you agree that there is this kind of coalition that's coalesced? Of course, institutionally, a big name here is the Quincy Institute, right? Uh, which has tried, the first, I would say, foreign policy think tank to try to bring these diverse strands together. Um, um, yeah, I would agree with that. And I mean, would you, so you think this is like a real thing, we're not just making it up? I mean, I think it's a, a new thing still. I mean, the the concept of
0: more restrained foreign policy. There are stream strands of this that go way back, decades. But the idea of institutionalizing it to compete with the, uh, you know, American Enterprise Institutes and Brookings and um, you know all these other places of the the DC world, I think, is still fairly new. And I don't think it's that surprising that there is some that it's more of a a kind of coalition that's still figuring out what it's kind of uh, various strands are. I I mean, I think uh, when you compare it to something like neoconservatism or uh, liberal interventionism, liberal internationalism, sorry. Um, I mean, these are, these (laughs) are, these have been doing. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, these, these movements have had a lot more time to kind of work these kinks out. So I don't think it's, Hugely surprising that that process is going on. But you do see, I mean, some other places, uh, you know, more traditionally, I would say, uh, interventionist or less restrained uh, places bringing in people. I mean, Stephen Wertheim, who's one of the, the you know, big, uh, most important, I would say, people in the, the sort of restrainer community is at the Carnegie Endowment now. I mean, he, oh. he was one oh. of the founding people with, with Quincy, but right. he's. Gone on to Carnegie. So I think, you know, uh, some of these places, even the Atlantic Council has brought in a couple of people and that's caused uh, some internal issues there, as far as I I know. Um I noticed you know but people who are one sort of them is I just this, noticed
1: yeah. the other day that Emma Ashford has a new affiliation, I think, on her Twitter account. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. All right, that's interesting. Um But uh, like, so far as I know, she didn't leave under duress. She's a she's a sought after right. she's a, she's a respected and sought after voice in foreign affairs. Um, yeah, I guess one thing that's new is kind of new is the term that people kind of settling on the term restrainer, which has that happened? Is that the official term? I don't know. I
0: don't know if it's the official term. It's like it's been the default. And I think part of the reason is, uh, you know, as you as you said, there are these, you know, multiple strands that don't necessarily sit well with one another on a broad range of issues. And so it's kind of reduced to You know, everybody thinks that everybody in this group sort of thinks that the United States should draw down its military presence around the world, should reduce the military budget, should be, you know, focusing on other uh, avenues of foreign policy that don't rely so much on having the biggest gun or the most expensive gun uh, or the most expensive weapon. And, you know, that that that's what brings everybody together. But, yeah, it's still you know, it's still very much a kind of heterodox uh, space, I think.
1: Now it seems to me there are some uh, other, at a, at a, maybe a higher level of of resolution, some unifying themes. But tell me if you think I'm wrong. And one of one of them, and I think this helps explain the so-called fracture over Ukraine. I mean, almost nobody is calling it that. Actually, it's not that. It's not, no, no huge earthquake has happened, but. <laughs> The, what 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 led me to want to talk to you about this is that I I got a call from somebody who's working on a piece for like a magazine you've heard of you know one of the kind of so-called little magazines that that focuses on on you know elite magazines with an ideological slant and and and, and this is the the thesis he was exploring you know what 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 has what has Ukraine done to has it fractured the restrainer community so that's why I'm interested in that's how I well, it's one thing that got me thinking about this. I I can talk in a second about some other recent developments that also helped. But in any event, um, in thinking about this, uh, one thing I thought. Well, let me let me just ask you: Do you think a unifying theme is like skepticism about this democracy versus autocracy framing? That so many people in the foreign policy establishment, including the Biden administration, are latching on like like we're in a global struggle between with, with authoritarian autocrats and, and that that should be that that should frame our thinking
0: I mean I, I I think it should be I think anytime the United States you know history has shown us that anytime u.s officials talk about Democracy, or spreading democracy, or you know, uh, spreading human rights, which is another theme. Of the Biden administration. I mean, it was like the first statement the State Department put out after he took office was, "We're recentering human rights in U.S. foreign policy." I mean, it's always, it, it always comes with huge caveats that that are left unsaid. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I I think that's. I think skepticism about. Uh, what the U S government says in, in in terms of its foreign policy goals is justified. And I would say probably, I mean, I, I, again, you know, you, you have people who may disagree with this, who otherwise would consider themselves restrainers. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that's right. I think that ought to be a, a a sort of
1: principle of, uh, a broadly speaking restrainer Mm. view of the world. I mean, Uh, Just to touch on that tangent that I got off on that seems otherwise inexplicable to to connect that to this a little. I I, kind of have a a suspicion that some of the people who are thought of as restrainers and seem not exactly on the same page as some other restrainers about Ukraine and are leading to talk about like fracture and so-called and fracture and stuff. Are people who actually are buying into the democracy versus autocracy framing more than some of us? I, I think that's one. Uh, I think I think that's a different. Let me let me just nod to that. If you want to say something, you can. But I just wanted to explain why I went off on that tangent. I I mean I I, I think
0: you're right. I wonder how much of it is like the post Trump effect. Like you, a lot of these people were you know, so horrified by Trump, and so you want to invest in the biden administration you want to believe you want to believe that when you know when the biden administration says we're going to do these things that we're going to do things differently from the way our predecessor did you want to believe that they they really mean it um i i wonder how much is that you know how much of the the sort of how many of these people would be more skeptical under a different set of circumstances if this were a if we had gone through a different you know past six years or, or uh whatever it's been at this point um if they would be more skeptical when when the Biden administration says stuff like this or whatever, if it was the Clinton administration second term or something.
1: Well, I think there's a a slightly different connection as well with the Trump administration, which was the great looming peril posed by the Trump administration was seen as, and I don't think this is a crazy thought, was seen as domestic authoritarianism, that he had these tendencies and that I think uh, July 6th, Showed that he was in some ways a, a dangerous guy, and so I I think authoritarianism became by virtue of Trump being seen as a threat, authoritarianism became seen as a bigger threat than it might have previously been, and to some extent that's being taken global. And then separately, but not totally unrelatedly, of course, Trump was identified with Russia. I mean, the Russia Gate thesis was that there were these deep connections, and so. Russia became more of an enemy to to liberals than it might have been otherwise. So now in Ukraine, you have an authoritarian autocracy. Russia, you know, kind of brings together everything anti-Trumpists hated by virtue of Trump. Now, I I got, you know, I want to say, like, also Russia invaded... Uh, Ukraine, which I don't approve of, it's a violation of international law. I want to, I want to get into, uh, in a, in a, in a while, why restrainers may have a little trouble framing their reaction to the invasion in terms of what we should actually do about it and and, and how outraged we should be about it. So, so that's my position, but I, I do think, you know, hardcore, you know. Hardcore anti-Trumpists, and I'm certainly an anti-Trumpist, were kind of primed to receive this anti-authoritarian, this message of like a global jihad against authoritarians. We're kind of primed by their opposition to Trump to receive that message.
0: I I think that's I think you're right. I think that's part of it. And I think it's uh, but I I do. I put a lot of stock, actually, in uh, the fact that this is Russia. That's that is the main focus here, because. Um, I mean, to look at some of the other things that went on in the Trump administration that made people uncomfortable, you know, when he had uh MBS at the White House and they were joking around about weapon sales and uh, you know, the 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 claims which are now, you know, the last just the last week have been revived of Trump trying to kind of funnel nuclear technology to the Saudis and um, you know, it really I think caused liberals to sort of Take a different look at the U.S.-Saudi relationship, briefly. But now you look at Biden, who has adopted this: we're we're fighting back against authoritarianism and its democracies versus autocracies. Going to Saudi Arabia and you know palling around with MBS, meeting with him, meeting with Abdel Fattah Sisi from Egypt, and uh, just sort of having you know good time. In America, we're having we're re- reestablishing all these relationships. These moments and and there's no i mean there is there has been criticism, but not as much as you might expect from people who were primed with this kind of you know what are we doing supporting authoritarians or we should stop doing that? It should be democracy and um uh, you know I think there's been less criticism of that and 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 it's been easier for people to kind of latch on to Russia because of that connection and and focus instead on on Ukraine and kind of give Biden a pass on some of these other things,
1: yeah. I, I I think that's right. The um so I what Um, uh, I mean let me let me uh give people like uh I, I guess a data point or two uh, uh about this idea that there is any kind of fracture. Um, I mean, I'm only aware of really a couple of data points. Uh one is that Joe Serencioni, long time kind of liberal activist on the nuclear front. He was president of Plowshares Foundation and he had been, he wasn't like on staff at Quincy, he was one of like, uh, I don't know, dozens and dozens of non-resident fellows who don't get a salary or anything. But anyway, he separated himself from the Quincy Institute, um, kind of conspicuously, I would say, kind of made a thing of it. And on grounds that and then when he was pressed as the why, he kind of said something about uh, you know, some people at Quincy seemed to want to justify Putin's invasion or something. And I did a piece on non-zero going through and showing that actually there's no evidence, <laughs> no evidence of that. And and there's right. evidence to the contrary. If you look at the people he, what the people he was supposedly complaining about had actually said, and what Quincy had said, um, So so anyway, there's that. And then I guess there's kind of relatedly uh, the fact that Matt Duss, who is Bernie Sanders' foreign policy advisor, wrote a piece for the New Republic um, about how uh, people on the left should uh, staunchly support, like, I hope I don't have this wrong, but like the arming of Ukraine uh, and uh, the ongoing military support for Ukraine against Russia. And actually, I think there are a number of restrainers who who think that in some measure that support is justified, and maybe that is. Uh, um, but, but but anyway, th- that was. I think some people have seized on that just because it's like Bernie, uh, Bernie's foreign policy advisor, uh, who, who who seems to be taking issue with some fellow leftist over this. Uh, I, I think they see that as the sign of internal tension. And those are the only two things I'm kind of aware of. I mean, uh, were you, are you aware of more than that? And, 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 uh, do you attach significance to those things? Um, I, I'm not aware. I mean, I don't, I don't
0: spend a huge amount of time kind of trying to track what uh, other, you know, parts of the restrainer community are saying, but. I'm not aware of anything other than that little uh, kind of hiccup that happened at at Quincy with the Serencioni and I think uh, one of their board members, and I'm not even I don't even remember who it was, but one of their I think board members might have left.
1: Who was a retired okay. general? And when they asked him, and again, they're like a lot of board members, uh, but he did resign, and he didn't. He wasn't very performative about it. I would say right. to his credit, but when somebody asked him on Twitter why. Uh, did you resign? Uh, he said, because I support NATO, and, and I think, um, I don't know, maybe that points to one of the tensions within the restrainer community. I don't know, there's certainly I think NATO varying, may be, yeah, there are varying views on NATO. I mean, there there, there are uh, you know, there are people who 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 just don't want binding military alliances. And there are people who are kind of fine with NATO as it is, but think expanding it was a mistake. But do not it's not a big B in their bonnet. Maybe that points to something. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a range of opinions. The one that I I sort of have on NATO is, uh, I, I feel like it was an organization that had a purpose, and that purpose ended. And then the danger is you have a bunch of modern militaries in an organization that's going to look for a new purpose and that's right. that to me is uh problematic and that's you know that's the, the sort of issue i have there but yeah i think um you know i i don't think this has been a huge thing dust is i remember dust's piece kind of uh created a stir and that that i think was more confined to the the kind of left I mean, it was it was obviously addressed there but more more confined to kind of the left strain of uh restrainerism uh, if if you know if you want to use that term um and i i i get it i mean i get the the idea of solidarity i get you know the idea that this is uh, you know if you op- oppose imperialism you should oppose it in all its forms even when it's not the united states doing it and um you know i do and and that's that's all fine i don't i never know with these pieces like what is it that i'm supposed to do like say okay i i i get it i oppose the invasion uh i i support ukraine what am i supposed to do now Like, and if it's support the arming of the ukrainian military i can understand kind of going to the point of saying we're going to supply them with defensive capabilities and Kind of help them fend off this invasion but it's always a slippery slope and we're already on it it's always always a slippery slope to the to bigger and better and more powerful more offensive systems we've started with the you know the long-range artillery the uh drones and now we're talking about even more advanced drones we're talking about aircraft again which is something the biden administration dismissed fairly early on and has now been resuscitated because this is how it goes you you help them you know how you help these uh, you know, this laudable cause kind of resist the first wave of the invasion. And then you want to keep going. You're committed now to, to defeating Russia and supporting mm-hmm. Ukraine no matter what it takes. And then you, you get into, you know, that that takes you into spaces that are, I think, less uh, justifiable from a restraint perspective. It, it also, I think, is problematic because everything that happens here, when you talk about uh, arming the Ukrainians, fuels the same military industrial complex to to use that kind of tired term i guess um that that drives so much of american foreign policy i mean you're you're buying weapons you're funneling you know you're putting giving money to defense contractors they're going to turn around and lobby the government for you know more weapons and more uh you know kind of uh let's say uh energetic foreign policy and that that just continues the cycle it feeds the uh the cycle so i that's that's where i have concerns uh on that front and i i don't remember us really getting much into that it was just sort of an appeal to emotion like th- this is bad and we should sympathize with the ukrainians and and help them and uh, okay i mean you're sort of tugging at heartstrings uh but but you're not reckoning with mm. the implications of that
1: i mean i i think for somebody like me, who who really uh, is like almost an international law fetishist, at least in the sense that I think we should really work to nurture respect for it and and build it up and you know and improve it. Uh, I mean, it it has, as people on the left particularly point out, it 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 does kind of favor the powerful in some respects in terms of like the body of, of well de facto adjudic- adjudication of wars is the Security Council, which is like the big powerful countries. And so on. Anyway, but but, uh, to somebody like me who cares about international law, there is this reason to want Russia not to get positive reinforcement for violating international law. You'd like the invasion not to succeed. And uh, on the other hand, and I think this is a real issue that some restrainers are wrestling with. On the other hand, it is my belief that um, a the U.S. has violated international law in exactly this way by right. invading countries. B, uh, some of those I think made this more likely to happen. Russia says it did. If you if you if you if you trace Putin's relevant utterances over the last two decades, he starts talking in 2007 about how the U.S. Uh, you know, and in invading Iraq and, and and something that really, really bothered the Russians was the Kosovo intervention, which was also, yes. I, I think, illegal. It was it was not unlike the Bo- earlier Bosnia intervention. It wasn't sanctioned by the Union Security Council. Um, right. They certainly say that that led them to start behaving in like manner, which they hadn't done before, uh, say, 2008, uh, after we issued this uh, NATO invitation to Ukraine and Georgia. Um, so anyway, I, I, you know, I, I think we have violated international law that should be pointed out, especially since I think it contributed to the invasion. I think other things uh, contributed, uh, made the invasion more likely, like NATO expansion, uh, like the recent pretty brisk arming of Ukraine and various other things we've done, I, I think helped push things to this point. And, a problem we face. And, and I think those things, I, I mean, the idea that like NATO expansion and various other things needlessly raise the chances of a tragedy like this is pretty much a unifying view within the restrainer community, so far as I can tell. That That is a, 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 a you know, I, I kind of think if you don't believe that, maybe you don't belong in the community. But for, for all of us, this is a a. If nothing well, else, even I think. I mean, I think you said maybe in that? your
0: piece, but I can't. I I mean, I I can't remember if you mentioned this in your piece, but I think even uh, Joe Serrincioni had you know previously said things about you know NATO expansion that were in line with what you're talking about. though that it's uh,
1: well, that was the you weird know, you're, thing. You're, you're that
0: provoking. Uh, you're provoking Russia to to respond in some way. I didn't it's, mention it's that in idea.
1: in my piece. As I was posting my piece, Scott Horton. Tweeted okay, uh, that was it. His, that was it. His converse, you know, excerpts of his conversation with Joe at the very beginning of the war, where Joe had said all this stuff himself. He, yeah. he I think he used the phrase, you know, uh NATO expansion and very these various things, uh provocative set the stage was the phrase he used for this invasion, even though it's Putin's fault, which is my that's my view is Putin's the one who violated international law in this case. Right. Um but still we uh you know we bear some uh, we bear responsibility for, if nothing else, unwise, policy. In some cases, the policy itself was a violation of international law. Um, and I think the problem we face is that whenever you say this, people think you are justifying the invasion, defending the invasion itself. a Putin apologist. And that puts a lot of heat on us, and it's kind of hard to take. And um, I, I, I wonder if that's one thing that's that's going on here. I don't know if that made uh, any sense, but it's it's a it's a source of internal tension, uh, at least within me, whether or not within the restrainer coalition. Right. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think this is true on a on a whole range of issues. I mean, there's a there's a tendency. Uh, not to want to have uncomfortable conversations in the wake of some major event happening like now's not the time is the you know the phrase that's always used it's not time we can talk about that later of course we never do talk about it later and the time to talk about these things is when they are uh, most relevant and the time to talk about things like you know was nato expansion a good idea um was i think in the wake of seeing the consequences or one of the consequences of of nato expansion which is that it it raised tensions in uh eastern europe and and probably contributed to worsening relations between what russia and the west and and the you know that ended up with this invasion but but we never seem to want to do that and uh, you know again it's not just about this it's about a whole range of things we don't like to have those conversations when they're the most urgent and most uncomfortable and we want to put them off. And then we put them off. And if they ha- happen at all, they happen in some kind of abstract, esoteric way that doesn't doesn't really mean anything to anybody.
1: No, that's right. We certainly weren't talking about these things in the previous 20 years very much. I mean, there was kind of the outrage once once Iraq headed south. And and, uh, you know, a lot of people who supported it started saying this is a bad idea. We did have this period of saying this was a bad idea. But even so, there wasn't much in the way of pointing out that that hey, if we're going to talk about a rules based order, which I'm in favor of talking about, if if especially if we're in position to talk about it, but we're not because we keep breaking the rules. And um, I think you're right. I mean, there's two problems. One is if not now, when are we going to have this discussion? Because uh, we we don't w- when we're not in the middle of a crisis that arguably. Uh, was made more likely by these bad policies. You know, when we're not in the middle of such a crisis, there's no big discussion of the policies. If, if, If not now, when there's that. But there's also the fact that the outcome of the debate is relevant to things other than Ukraine, like Taiwan. I mean, is it the case, as Putin himself has basically said, that the flow of weapons into Ukraine during the Trump and Biden administrations was something he found increasingly intolerable and and basically figured the longer I wait to act, the worse it's going to get better act now. If that is in fact, was in fact a causal force, we need to know that as we ask ourselves, whether sending more arms into Taiwan is in fact going to have the deterrent effect. We, we think it's going to have because there's a, there's a case you can make that in Ukraine, it had the opposite of a deterrent effect. So, right. This discussion of what what led to the Ukraine invasion is like urgently topical. And yet still people are are getting stigmatized for for wanting to have it honestly and openly. Right. And I, I mean, even
0: if you stick with Ukraine, it's it's urgently topical because these are things that if you can envision a point where both the Ukrainians and the Russians are ready to sit down and talk and try to negotiate an end to this war these are issues that are going to come into that conversation. And there are questions about what is NATO prepared to do to support a peace effort? What is the United States prepared to do? Are we prepared to take the sanctions away? Or are these, have these things taken on a life of their own and we're, you know, pursuing other aims now? Uh, Are we prepared to put that on the table? And I think, um, yeah, there, there, I, there's been, it's, it's partly it's, you know, the, the, if not when now and sort of the the versus the like now is not the time team Um uh, part of it i think is a is an attention span thing i mean ukraine was in the news in 2014 the euromaidan uprising you know driving out the government and uh, russia annexing crimea and you know that that was a a big event was covered a lot and then we kind of forgot about it for uh, eight years we we didn't really pay much attention to the fact that the the nato countries were arming the ukrainians they were training ukrainian soldiers we didn't pay much attention to the fact that there was this frozen military conflict in the donbass where people were dying i mean you know at at a startling rate frankly given the the lack of coverage that it got um you know you you only hear about it then after the fact after the invasion begins and oh by the way For the past eight years, like, you know, a few thousand people have been killed uh, by artillery shelling in this region. And gee whiz, go figure. Um, You know, I I think that's another part of it is we just don't we don't pay attention to these things after they kind of lose their uh, panache, I think.
1: And then once war happens, if you if you try to shed light on on this context, you're accused of doing Putin talking points. Right. I mean the The effect of wartime psychology on people's ability to look at a situation objectively continues to horrify me. I, I, every time it happens, I am amazed anew. Like, in the run-up to the Iraq war, I was like, "What's going on? Am I the crazy one? Uh, uh, you know, and and but and it happens it, it just happens again and again and and then and we're not even direct combatants in this world, although we're we're pretty much pushing the, the definition of indirect <laughs> yes, uh, very I mean, much
0: pushing the envelope here.
1: We're 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 apparently uh vetoing we're apparently giving them the intelligence information that guides the HIMARS strikes, and we have right. the ability to veto any strikes we don't like. Well, <laughs> that's kind of
0: close that's to running. Really, the war. You're,
1: yeah, you're really on the
0: on the cutting edge there. Uh,
1: but 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 um <laughs> but in any event, uh wait, where, where was I? <laughs> what point was I making when I uh The uh, just the psychology
0: of it, the the people's ability to kind of justify. Yeah, we're not even
1: technically direct combat uh, participants in the war, and yet it's like if you so much as suggest that an atrocity has been committed one time by any Ukrainian soldier, which there's good evidence of, yeah, you know, people, uh, especially early in the war, people just you know kind of freak out. And- well, look, I
0: mean, look at what happened to Amnesty. Just I mean, that was recent. they They put out a report that said the Ukrainians are we have we see it. We have evidence. They're putting uh, artillery pieces and, you know, uh, other military equipment near civilian population areas and uh, drawing responses from the russians. and and they they were at great lengths to say the Russian response and bombing these places is, worse i mean it's a greater violation of international law than what the ukrainians are doing but what the ukrainians are doing is still not okay and it was just like this firestorm of outrage like you're you know you're vladimir putin's handmaiden uh you know spewing russian mm-hmm. propaganda out into the world and and they they like backed off a little bit from it which is just
1: crazy i mean it was was well, it, it really amazing an to important, watch um talking point you know which is that Every time a Ukrainian civilian is killed, we can assume that that was intentional and is and is uh, part of a larger genocidal plan. I mean, I mean there there are respected voices. I mean, this isn't uh, uh, and and look, there obviously have been real atrocities on the Russian side, you know, uh, Bucha and so on. Um, but that I mean, the war itself is an atrocity. I mean, well, the whole yeah, the war itself is illegal. Yeah. Okay, so the invasion itself is a war crime. Now, separate from that, there's the, there's the question of what constitutes a war crime within a war, regardless of who is to blame for the war, regardless of who violated the law and thus led to the war. There's the separate cre- question of war crimes uh, within the war. And I think we should try to take a balanced view. And it's true that you're not supposed to uh, position uh, forces directly next to uh, civilians, I believe. I mean, I, I and, and anyway, that's what Amnesty was was pointing out. and of course, you know, people taking a overview view of this have been saying this all along is that sometimes what's happening when Ukrainian civilians die is the Russians are taking us uh, trying to take a city, which, of course, we deplore. Again, the whole effort is illegal, but the way wars are fought is if, if, if the force defending the city embeds itself in the city, you fire on the city. That's what America does. It does it with more precise weapons, but that's what we did in Iraq. And. And, uh, and 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 so, um, you know, but but that is a it, it threatens a, a talking point you hear from some of the most extreme voices. Uh, and what's alarming is how <laughs> I, I want to ask you this before the end of the conversation, I want to ask you about this recent news about the, the kind of Biden kitchen cabinet like calling in Michael McFaul for guidance and Ann Applebaum for guidance I mean <laughs> yeah that was th- that was these people very are hysterics. disturbing I'm sorry yes. these people yes. are not sober people and the, and the, and they you cannot follow their commentary on the war and 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 seriously argue that we should be listening to them they 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 just lack totally lack balance and sobriety and 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 they're the people who are who are leading some of these talking points that are endangered by just an honest, look at the evidence.
0: I I think there's a couple of things here. One is that for people who fancy themselves sort of devotees of the rules based order, uh, I, I, I wonder when they get so upset about an organization like amnesty saying, Hey, look, you know, the ukrainians aren't following the rules like you know they've got they violated the rules in these couple of ways what what is the purpose of having the rules in the first place if you're not going to do that if everything can just be boiled down to like this these are the bad guys and these are the good guys and everything the bad guys do is bad and everything the good guys do is good you don't need the rules you already have your rubric it's very simple you just do everything the bad guys do is bad everything you need the rules because sometimes the quote unquote good guys don't follow them and there needs to be some guardrails to, to this. Um, the other thing I would say is uh, to, to kind of continue the the good guy, bad guy theme. I, I do think there is a desire and maybe it's because people really don't pay much attention to foreign policy and they don't uh, until we get to a situation like this and it's all over the news. There, I, I think there is a desire to view these things in very basic terms like this side is doing the wrong thing and this side is doing the right thing and we should support the side that's doing the right thing and if you're a michael mcfall or an ann applebaum and you are willing to to say that from a nice you know uh lofty media perch that gets you more lofty media perches that gets you you know from your you go from your you know, well-followed Twitter account to MSNBC to, you know, columns here and columns there. You have to write a book about it. And so it just fuels this kind of oversimplification, very gross oversimplification of these, of, of issues like this. And because that's what everybody thinks the public wants. And maybe on some level it is, again, because, you know, we don't pay attention to this stuff when it's not, it's not kind of big, loud, explosive things are happening.
1: Yeah. I certainly think uh, the dynamics of social media have not have not been helpful in terms of what kinds of things the Michael McFaul's get uh, positive reinforcement for.
0: Yeah. Or even when they get to do kind of righteous anchor over, you know, look at these people questioning me and uh, they're all Putin, you know, Putin fans. And I mean, it's just yeah, it fuels a lot of, I think, very bad, very negative tendencies and kind of across the board.
1: Yeah. Let me ask you: uh, What would if I had just said at the beginning, what are some differences you see between, say, the left and say the libertarian right or the Buchananite right on foreign policy? Um, Leave the restrainer rubric that kind of unites them at some level of generality aside. What are some differences you see? I mean, I I think there's a
0: there are a few there's a cold the sort of cold blooded national interest uh, strain I think that is more prevalent on the right with the uh, the Buchananites and the the libertarians that um, we should be restrained in our foreign policy because it's not in U.S. national interest to say you know be making extravagant promises to defend Taiwan or to you know. Uh, have bases all over the world, that we should be more focused on just what is purely in the U.S. national interest versus uh, on the left, I think there's more support for things like international institutions that actually mean something that aren't, you know, just kind of weak uh, facsimiles of what real international institutions would look like. There's more. um, And and this is why I think Ukraine, you're able to write, Matt Duss is able to write a piece like this to sort of tug at people's heartstrings, there is more support for human rights, for, you know, the the kind of uh, protecting people who are in dire straits. So, you know, whether it's, you know, in some place like Myanmar or Ukraine or, um, you know, take your pick, there, there's more kind of desire to do that. You have to work out. I mean, I think this is still where things are kind of forming in this strain you trying to figure out how to do that without resorting to the military aspect, which which doesn't work anyway, uh, but trying to figure out ways to to achieve aims that that uh, are broadly speaking, I think, you know, left the left supports, uh, where I, I find, you know, some of these more kind of right wing versions of restrainers, it's just not a just not an issue. It's not something that's considered.
1: Yeah. Um no, the part of the the part of the right that embraces the democracy promotion stuff and and to some extent the human rights is is the more war part of the right, the neocons, um, and I think you know some people on the left have kind of increasingly taken account of that and and realized like there's a reason for that. They they keep using these things to get us drawn into what are ultimately conflicts, um, but uh, yeah, that's a difference. Um, I mean, there's there's a a little bit of a rhetorical difference. I there used to be maybe less now, in, in terms of use of the word empire. I used to hear that mainly on the left that that like it's the we should think of these wars right. as an extension of the American imperial project. I think that language has been embraced a little more on the it's, on the right. It's Am kind I imagining of filtering? That? Yeah, I think um, more.
0: I mean, I would say. Yeah, I, I think it is. I think it's kind of filtering into the the right. And again, I I don't track this stuff that closely, but uh, you do see more people. I mean, there's 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 a sort of libertarian strain of of uh, analysis that comes through in a lot of the stuff that Quincy publishes, for example. And I think that's, um, you know, that that is increasingly a part of it. The willingness to say this is an imperial project, and you know, that's that's bad i mean i think on some level you disagree we disagree about why um why it's bad or what we would do differently or what for example just to take like the very narrow view of having an 850 billion dollar military budget or really over a trillion when you get all the other kind of ancillary uh stuff roped into it the i think everybody sort of you can look at it as a microcosm like everybody sort of agrees that that's too much. Everybody in the restrainer community sort of agrees that that's too high. We should cut it. We should be uh, we should bring it down. But the question then of what to do uh, with the money that you're not spending on the military anymore is is salient. And I think uh, there would there right. would be some major disagreements about that.
1: Right. I mean, I think uh, a hobby horse of mine, global governance is sometimes a divider between uh, left and right. I mean, I mean, on the one hand, I've been. uh there are a lot, there are people on the right, including the libertarian right, who are willing to acknowledge that when uh, a nation faces a, a like a non-zero-sum problem, that where cooperation with other nations is a way to serve its interests, like with arms control, um, then you do it. Uh, I, I think people left or center like me have maybe a broader idea of how Often it's going to make sense to engage in serious global right. governance of that kind. I think that's a divider, uh, but it, it doesn't. Uh, it it hasn't been a divider for practical purposes with 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 the issues of the day, things like Ukraine, getting out of Afghanistan, ending the forever wars. I think I think one thing that has happened is that ending the forever wars that ultimately emanated from the war on terror. Uh, has been a project kind of everybody left of center could get on board with. It's, I think it's almost a no brainer, even though the, the the wars continue. I mean, we've got troops in God knows where right now doing God right. knows what. Uh, but um,
0: I mean just drone, stra- <laughs> drone bomb cobble. Yeah. So yeah, it's still going on.
1: Yeah. Um, and I think that was an easy thing for even like the MSNBC people to get on board with, you know. Yeah. But then yeah. something like this comes up. And as you said, there's things that, you know, that, that should tug at, heart, at people's heartstrings. I mean, the invasion itself is bad. Uh, it, it, Ukraine is a democracy, if not a super liberal one, but, you know, more than Russia is. And there's all that you can say. And, and it's, it's, it's fair. But I think that I think we were in a period when the forever wars were the big issue, when you could kind of jump on board the restrainer boat without thinking through all of the commitments that actually that entails if you're serious about it
0: yeah i think that's i think that's fair afghanistan was sort of this big kind of glaring thing out there and yeah i mean again you know it's we're we're not entirely out of there i mean we we just bombed kabul uh we seized i mean just kind of pillage seven billion dollars out of the afghan central bank and foreign reserves uh, that have made it you know impossible to deal with uh, you know untold humanitarian crises across that country um but that's the stuff i mean that's stuff that should tug at the heartstrings too and we don't really right. talk about it because right. it's the us that's doing it not russia so we can't like point the finger someplace else um so yeah i mean i i i, I think with the war ending, there is sort of this like uh, there were some people who were maybe thought of themselves as as restrainers who are now, you know, working out the what that really means and and maybe they're not in that space,
1: yeah. so you are Islamic history is your original entry point into
0: u s yes. foreign policy, right? Yes, <laughs> kind of a circuitous path, but yes, so you actually are a student of Islamic history? Um. Yeah, I mean, my in grad school, my focus was kind of early modern, uh, late medieval and early modern Iran, so not even really <laughs> anything that connects directly to U.S. foreign
1: policy, but uh, that's how I came to it. But did the Iraq War get draw you into the foreign policy um,
0: debates? It was an interesting time to be uh, in grad school, and I, I was at the University of Chicago, which has a reputation for being mm. quite right-wing, but that reputation comes from the economic school from the you know kind of business school end of things to be in the middle east studies department at that time which was quite kind of anti-war um was a was a really interesting time and and it did kind of wake me up to um some things i think you know having been a fairly i think standard clintonian democrat for the mm-hmm. for much of the 90s it was Uh, It was a real shock to to sort of experience that war and just watch the United States kind of run roughshod over everything in its zeal to go to go to war with a country that hadn't done anything. I mean, it was not, you know, it was not related to uh, 9-11. It was just like, okay, here's our excuse. Let's do it. Uh, And yeah, that was that was very eye opening. I I, it's uh, definitely the formative, definitely a
1: formative period. And, and of course, the excuse that was that we said they might have weapons of mass destruction. And yet, in order to do the invasion, we had to expel the international weapons inspectors, inspectors who were actually yes. being allowed to look wherever they said they wanted to look right. for the weapons of mass destruction. I mean, it is just I, I know I've said this. Anyone who listens to my podcast regularly, I apologize. I know you've heard this at least 500 times. It just never ceases to amaze me. It's my it was mind blowing at the time. But uh, so and then, of course, when we we,
0: you know, hit upon the Iran-Iraq war era, mustard gas stockpiles that were no longer usable and that the United States had helped Saddam get. Yeah, uh, this was like, see, we were right. He had weapons. Of mass I mean, it was just so absurd. The, there's there's a, a level of absurdity to that war that I, I think can't be topped.
1: Now, one thing the University of Chicago is known for in the realm of international relations is realism. That's partly by virtue of the prominence of John Mearsheimer, I guess. But uh, would would you say that uh, a kind of a realist tenor is a unifying theme among restrainers? And 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 I I guess I'm going to ask you to tell me what you mean by realist when you answer the question.
0: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I tend to identify realism as more uh, of a conservative Strain, and it's it's more again, kind of you know looking very uh, starkly at what is in U.S. national interest, and if it's in U.S. national interest to deal with uh, human rights violators, to do you know to what whatever it is, you, you sort of right. follow that strain. That's my layperson's understanding of it, and I would say um, when you you talk about a left restraint uh, kind of branch. Uh, there's more. I, I mean, I I view it as in the U.S. national interest to do these things. I view it as in U.S. national interest to cooperate on climate change, to build international institutions that actually foster some, uh, you know, need to to follow international law or the rules, the rules of the rules based order. Um, but I, I don't know that you know somebody like Mearsheimer would would agree with that. Um, and you know, again, I'm I'm sort of a layperson in the international relations. Field, so i don't i, I don't want to speak for anybody else but that's that's where i view the the divergence is um again there's more kind of an internationalist not militarist but internationalist right kind of orientation on the
1: on the left yeah i think a part of realism that has been at least partly adopted among restrainers on the left is the idea that The internal affairs of other countries are not your business. Now, as you suggest, people on the left would not say that in such universal terms, probably, as people on the right. And um, but I think there's been growing awareness that, however laudable concern for human rights and so on within the bounds of other nations, as a practical matter, our concerns have um, rarely translated into anything productive, and have sometimes translated into catastrophic things, like the Libyan intervention. Um, so I think that that's the sensibility, and and it gets back to what you were saying about how there is this tension on 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 the left. You know, we do have these heartstrings you can tug, and and uh, right. and. But at the same time, I think that more of that part of realism. I mean, it used to be viewed with nothing but abhorrence on the left in the days of Kissinger. When Kissinger was thought of as a realist, and you can argue about whether he was, because the, you know most realists didn't support the Vietnam War, uh, right. in, even in those days, and, and he had. Um, but, uh, but, but still, he was kind of the icon of realism, completely cold-blooded guy who apparently would just as soon uh, you know, bomb 100,000 people as, uh, you know, cancel a lunch appointment. Um, if that made, I don't know if that made sense. But anyway, the, um, uh, uh, and I think there's been more, that that part of indifference to to human suffering with other people bounds we don't buy. We certainly don't right. buy the idea that you have a right to inflict it. But the idea that your own uh, foreign policy should not revolve around often doomed and often counterproductive attempts to remedy things within other people's borders is, I think, something more more accepted on the left. I I think that's right. I mean, I think what
0: what you get uh, on the left these days is less like, uh, at least in the, on a in a restrained left, it, it's less. You know, we should. Uh, be proactively in this sort of Samantha Power sense. we should be sort of going out and uh, we have the responsibility to protect this. This was the you know the big strain of of thinking that that we have to go and and proactively help people who are you know under threat from from their own governments. We have to protect them. It's less that than you know, look at what the United States does with a lot of countries that have really lousy human rights records. and what you're after is a sort of consistency if you're gonna criticize Iran or you're going to criticize Russia or you're going to criticize China and and kind of you know try to isolate them or punish them for these perceived uh and you know most cases actual I'm not I'm not you know trying to deny it uh human rights violations what are we doing with Saudi Arabia what are we doing with Egypt what are we doing with uh you know depending on the administration what are we doing with the the uh Bolsonaro government in Brazil you know it just let's just try to have some consistency here and right. uh you know not we, maybe we don't need to be in bed with these countries that are, uh, you know, just horrifyingly uh, awful on, when it comes to things like human rights. Uh, maybe we don't need to support them. Maybe we don't need to be, you know, kind of doing business with them. Right. Uh, and that's that's where, yeah, I, mean, I, I think uh, it, the direction of the the discussion has gone. is It's more about what the U.S. does in relation to these things than about interfering in the in, internal kind of workings of those countries.
1: I mean, I'm fine with taking into account their human rights policy to the extent of saying, "Well, we're just not going to send you weapons." I wish we would do right. that with, with, with Saudi right. Arabia and and so on. But uh, but that's different from saying we're going to, you know, invade you. Exactly. Uh, because uh, whatever the um. Exactly. So, uh, well, I, I that that kitchen cabinet thing. I was d- did you did you pay much attention to this? I guess it was a Washington Post piece about how. Biden had, I, I guess they had convened people informally a couple of times. I didn't read it that closely. I gather it, it was part, there was a conversation about threats to democracy, and maybe that's why Ann Applebaum was there. And then I think there was maybe a separate con- uh, uh, meeting about Russia-Ukraine, and I don't know which ones, I think McFaul was at the Russia one, along with like Fareed Zakaria and other people, And uh, but... um. Did you? Did yeah, I
0: think uh, the name that stuck out to me is probably not the uh, best known on the list. Was uh, Steveritus, the the former NATO commander, mm-hmm. uh, who has written some really just batch things over his uh, his career as a like eminence, um, mostly about Iran, I think. But I I'm, I'm, uh, I can't point to anyone specifically. It's just a general impression I have of him. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I sort of watched it. It kind of got uh, subsumed by the Trump. I was I was paying more attention to the FBI raid. And yeah. That turns out to have been uh, interesting, shall we say. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this is, it's
1: still not clear what
0: where the right where the still me- not clear. But yeah. but, you know, some of the things that have been suggested are, are not not great. Not great. Uh, uh, if he you know, if these are the if he stole nuclear documents or, you know, stashed nuclear documents at Mar-a-Lago. Not great. But this is, I mean, this has been uh, a a thing. I mean, Obama met with, with these kinds of people all the time. He met with like David Brooks and it's always people that you would rather they not be meeting with that go to these things. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I think it's a, it's a sort of, I don't know what to, uh, how to put maybe a pathology on, on the, the, and I think it's more on the democratic side, although certainly I'm sure Republican presidents, you know, meet with kind of right-wing columnists and stuff, but there's a, There's a a pathology, I think, among Democrats to gain the approval of these like center right columnists at The New York Times and The Washington Post. And I don't know why, because I don't know that they have any constituency anymore. I mean, it used to be, yeah, Mm -hmm. sure. A lot of people read these columns and got their, you know, kind of formed their opinions around the way that the columnists frame things. But I don't. I don't know what tom friedman is telling i mean i don't know if people are reading tom friedman anymore or david brooks or uh you know ann applebaum or any of these people and yet i i think there's it's just sort of this need to get approval from that crowd regardless you know uh of what it means more broadly they just kind of crave the approval of the columnists
1: yeah i mean i wondered which in which direction the hoped for influence was going to work? Probably both. I mean, on the one hand, I think you're right. Uh, a White House brings these people in to try to make them part of the team and flatter them. We value your opinion. And that makes them want to remain part of the club right. and support the administration. On the other hand, especially somebody like Biden, who is like, as I think I'm not the first to point out, kind of an old guy who maybe is not as totally on top of stuff as he once was if you've got advisors around him who are trying to shape his views you know that 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 may be part of the formula here they are you know i mean look like tony blinken i can so, totally see anthony blinken thinking it would be great to 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 have a- ann applebaum and uh, michael McFaul shape joe biden's thinking i mean maybe that's too dark a view of 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 tony blinken but he just is not i'm sorry he hasn't impressed me um so it, i think it works it can work both ways. Um, and I don't know exactly what was going on. Here. I don't, it's yeah. I don't
0: know if either way is good. Like, I mean, if you want, it, it it's a mutual thing. I mean, I think there's a push and pull relationship, right? I mean, you bring them in and try to get them on the team, but at the same time, they're going to, their ideas are going to filter back. And, uh, you know, there's, there's going to be this horrifying consensus that emerges from stuff like this. That, Uh, you know doesn't do much good for anybody but it seems to be the way that things are done
1: yeah yeah well um we've been going about an hour now which i think is about the prescribed amount of time anything else you want to say about any of this um
0: no just uh you know people should listen to your show they should subscribe to non-zero newsletter and they should be subscribing to American prestige and foreign
1: exchanges. Let me make one more pitch. <laughs> well, thank you for plugging my stuff. And unless I'm mistaken, is your t shirt plugging American prestige? It is, say?
0: actually. I tried to put a, I put you a, you nothing to chance over it, but yeah, it's sort of, it's sort of is plugging. You our, just happened to be logo. wearing it. Yeah. Just it was the, it was literally the first shirt in the pile. So I know how that, don't, happens. don't judge me too harshly.
1: I know how that happens. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, it's worked. You do. You you are the CEO of Media Empire. So congratulations. Thank you. I, yeah, it's a promotion for me. Thank you. Yeah. yeah okay. Well, well, well. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Derek, and we'll uh, we'll check in down the road. Thanks a lot, Bob. Thanks for having me on.